forefathers and those who have gone before us. And uh, God, tonight, as we uh, move forward in Genesis 24, I pray that you would guide our time. I pray that you would uh, open our minds to be able to have a clear uh, picture of, of your design, of uh, the way you work, of, of what a right response would be as we, as we seek to uh, be obedient to the things we learn in the Scriptures. God, we pray that you would guide our time. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and open up to Genesis 24. Uh, last week, for those of you who are here, uh, was a sweet time of worship together. We didn't sing or recite poetry or anything like that, but we shared what was going on in each other's lives. And it was a really sweet time of worship. It was an intimate time of worship. Uh, It was brought on uh, by this beautiful picture of this robust worshiper that we see in Genesis 24. What's his name? This robust worshiper. Eleazar. Yes. The robust worshiper of Genesis 24, Eleazar. Eleazar has been commissioned by Abraham to go to his country and his kindred to find a wife for Isaac. Now to make sure we're all on the same page in case this is your first time here or whatever, why is it important that Isaac finds a wife? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Isaac needs to find a wife, make some babies, because if not, there's no, through Isaac shall your offspring be blessed and and, and numerous. That's a very, very important point in Genesis 24. Yeah, we got you. I just couldn't hear you. Um, So as as Eleazar is on this journey, uh, we've seen this theme develop, this kind of three-part theme. Does anyone remember the three parts, or the first part at least? It's about details. Yeah, worship God in the details, that's the second one. What's the first one? Pay attention to the details. And then the, what's the last one? Share them. So pay attention to the details, worship God in the midst of the details. And then the third thing that we see is to share the details with others so that they can worship God in the same manner that you've worshiped God. Because our worship is a response to God revealing himself to us. So in, through the scriptures, through the way that he's working in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the things he's doing in the world, this redemption that is so very real. Uh, as God reveals himself to us, our worship is, is how we res- respond to that. So we want to be wholehearted in our response. And so we see this, pay attention to the details, worship God in the midst of the details, tell the details to others so that they might have the opportunity to worship God in a like manner. And one of the things that we shared last week was that that's a theme in the Psalms as well. Um, I'm doing this thing where I'm reading through about 10 chapters of Psalms a day and trying to just get this really robust picture of a robust worshiper. And that's the same theme that we see throughout that whole book. Um, uh, and this week I found some, some more verses that I wanted to share with you in the Psalms. I told you to turn to Genesis 24 and that was wrong. Turn to Psalms 9. The same pattern of a robust worshiper. We saw this one before. We're going to look at this one. We're going to look at a few more. Psalm chapter 9, verse 1. This was the big one that we shared last last week in this laundry list of others. But it says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. And the thing that we drew from that is that wholeheartedness and worship is directly linked to recounting his deeds. 
If we're going to be wholehearted in our worship, we can't just say empty words or as long as we say what's on the screen, if, if what's on the screen is right and we say that, then that's wholehearted worship. That's not wholehearted worship. For us to be wholehearted worshipers, again, worship being us responding to what God reveals to us and how he reveals himself to us, in that response, if we're going to be wholehearted, we've got to have details. We've got to know what he's done. We've got, we got to have something to go with. We, he is great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. We've got to have something to explain what that greatness is and what he's done. And so wholeheartedness in worship is directly linked to being able to say, this is what he's done. This is what he's doing. This is what he did in this person's life this week. And this is what it looks like he may do in the future from what he's revealed to us in the scriptures. Turn over to Psalm 35, 18. It's interesting as I've continued reading, uh, there's, uh, the, the sharing is, is something that's done very publicly. It's, it's corporate worship. It's this public expression in Psalm 35, 18. It says, I will thank you in the great congregation, and the mighty throng I will praise you. So it's this picture of being thankful to God and praising Him out loud, using words explaining what He has done and who He is, and you're doing that publicly in the midst of the congregation. It'd be like us coming here and saying, look at what God has done. And then in Psalm 40, just a few pages over, this is a, this is a, a key, key passage to continuing to understand this picture of robust worship. Psalm 40, verses 9 through 10, says this. It's beautiful. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. His very worship is saying, God, I'm not hiding what you're doing in my heart. I'm not keeping this a secret between you and me. My worship exists in how much I am speaking and telling and sharing the good news of the truth of your design and who you are and what you're doing. So this picture is, this worship is, I'm not hiding this, God. I've, I've told this. You know me, Lord. You know what I'm doing. You know that this isn't some secret and I stay in my little closet and, and you do good things and I praise you, but I don't want to open my mouth and tell other people. He's saying, part of my worship, I'm not, I'm not hiding secrets. I'm not keeping this to myself. It's not a secret to be hidden. It's a beautiful thing of worship to be proclaimed and told to others. So last week we had this really sweet time of worship because we got to hear from each other what God was doing in, in everyone's lives. And it was really a sweet time of worship. Uh, and in the mere expression of recounting God's wonderful deeds, that's worship. Like you don't have to sing it like he showed me that I was wrong and he made me right. We don't have to sing it to make it worship. Just the sharing of what he's done is what is worship. It's this, it's this beautiful expression. However, one thing I heard from a few uh, last week was this thought of, oh man, I was eager to share with the body but you cut the thing off too early, you stopped too early, and I didn't get to say what I wanted to say. So, before we move forward this week, I'm not on a time crunch. I don't have a little schedule that I have to get done with certain chapters by a certain time. I thought we would finish this chapter this week. It'll likely be next week. But before we move on, I wanted to give another opportunity for us to worship together because I heard that from so many people last week, like, oh man, God's doing this cool thing I want to tell but you cut it off. Well, I don't want to be the jerk that keeps you from worshiping. And so tonight, uh, we may take three minutes, we may take more, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to worship together, recounting and remembering uh, God's wonderful deeds. So feel free to worship.
going to read Psalm 66, verse 8. It's so appropriate. I mean, what can you do after hearing those things just for 20 minutes? Other than just say how great God is. He's so good. And it gives you, if you're not the one sharing and you're sitting there listening to what people have been through, you realize that there's a right perspective in the midst of calamity and frustration. And there's a perspective that says, God's not out of control here. God's not taking a nap. This is, these aren't things that are happening outside of his design. And it's great that we can sit here and I'm hearing through different trials and different hard seasons and different hard realizations. You realize on the other side of that, God's perfect provision and what was actually going on then. And in uh, Psalm 66, verse 8, it says, Bless our God, O peoples. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing right now. We're blessing God. Let the sound of his praise be heard. That's what we're doing by not keeping it a secret between us and God. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. There's such redemption. Such redemption. And it's so good to hear those things that are going on because we get to celebrate that together uh, and praise God and worship just in the sharing of what He's doing. So let's take a minute to pray and thank Him for that before we move on. God, You're so good. Your provision is so abundant. I'm thankful that in the midst of this life, we can look around and know that this isn't all there is. I'm thankful that there's a true, very real place prepared and a God who is very real and very active in the midst of his people. The only reason we can be called your people is because you've made us that way. As it's been said, we cannot earn it. There's nothing we can do to achieve that kind of standing. And God, as I sit here and I listen to the way that you are blessing so many, the way you're teaching so many, and even how so many may be under a heavy burden right now that you've placed there on purpose for a reason, I'm so thankful that we can trust you. I'm so thankful that we can sit here with, this, uh, with these scriptures and with uh, the information that we've learned over the years and with the testimony of our brothers and sisters, and we can know that we serve a God who has never broken a promise who's never turned his back on his people, who always provides and brings us out of calamity and into this place of abundance and provision. And, and it doesn't make any sense because we don't deserve it at all. God, as we continue tonight, looking at how you did that uh, with Eleazar and, and Abraham and Isaac and Rebecca, and your provision is so abundant, even in times when uh, things don't seem to be going so well. I pray that we could see that and continue to rejoice tonight and praise you and proclaim your wonderful deeds. We thank you for Jesus and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn back to Genesis 24. We continue in uh, verse 50 of Genesis 24, uh, getting to see the good news that Eleazar gets to share, just as we've sat here and shared different forms of good news and how good God is. Uh, he has just shared with Rebecca's family what uh, the things that God has done to prosper his journey. That's where we're at. He's been on this long journey. He was at the well. He saw Rebecca. He said, God, give me a sign. It all happened. She was there before he was even done praying. God's provision was abundant. He worshiped God. He, told, he asked Rebecca what house she was of. 
she said the right answer, and he worshiped God, then they went, and now he's recounted everything that God has done up until this point. And he's sitting before the family, and he chooses his words very carefully, because again and again he said, God has shown steadfast love and faithfulness to my master. This happened, and this happened, and this happened, and God has shown steadfast love and faithfulness to my master. And then in in, uh, 49, he says, he chooses it carefully, he says, Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me. That I may turn to the right hand and to the left. He chooses those words carefully. He says, this is what God's done again and again and again. What about you? Because this is me. The hammer's coming down. I'm finishing what I was called to do. If you say no, the burden's off me. My master has said I can can no longer be responsible for this. But I want to know what you're going to do. And he presents it so clearly. And what he recounts about what God did, he doesn't leave things out. He doesn't do it haphazardly and be like, yeah, God brought me here. What do you think? He shares every detail that was experienced along the way that he worshipped in. And he does it in such a way that we see this response in verses 50 and 51. When Abraham's servant, or no, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, Laban is the brother, Bethuel's the father of Rebekah. So brother and father answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. And let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. That is a very sober-minded moment for both Laban and Bethuel. We got nothing. We got nothing good. We got nothing bad. It's pretty obvious that was from God. Well said, Eleazar. Take Rebecca and go. I got nothing. There's no response. Sometimes God makes things so clear to you that you have no choice but to shut it and submit. There's no place to, um, to speak or respond or rationalize or pontificate or discuss or get a group together. What, y'all? You just submit. God makes it so clear. And he's made it so clear here that brother and father have no choice but to submit. It's a very sober-minded moment. Now, I'm going to tell you in a few minutes that sober-minded judgment is going to change. So pay attention to it because they got nothing. I got nothing good. I got nothing bad. This is from God. Take her. This is clear. Um, God could not have been clear, and God's clarity was communicated through a diligently observant Eleazar. He, he, he communicated it clearly. That's an important step here. And then in verses 52 through 53, the theme continues. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. The theme continues. More details. I got more reasons to worship God. They said, yes, this is clear. Okay, I'm on my face on the earth, humbly. I don't care what they think. To praise God and to submit myself before him and humble myself before him and worship. The theme continues. Worship God in the midst of the details. And Eleazar's response is just as immediate as the others responded. They were very quick to say, this is clearly from God. And as soon as they gave the answer, he was very quick to say, I'm on my face before God. You see this immediate response here. He hears their response. He bows himself, a picture of submission before the Lord. As part of his worship, he gives gifts. I don't think this was separate. I don't think he worshiped God and said, let me get some gifts. I think part of his worship was thankfulness and giving gifts that were appropriate to the situation. He gives gifts to Rebecca uh, that are indicative of the abundant provision that God has supplied to his children. 
and the abundant provision that she'll have in the future. Answer this question. Where did these gifts come from? The very gifts that he's giving to Rebecca, these costly silver and gold and, and these ornaments and the clothing, where did it come from? God's blessing. What were some ways that Abraham collected some serious loot along the way? By being stupid. That's a perfect answer. What were some examples of that stupidity in which he collected some pretty serious loot? She's my sister. Yeah, that's a big one. Really? Okay. How's that going to work out for you? Oh, God's going to bless you abundantly even though you're a moron. Okay. That's how it works with us too. We can relate. He's got all this stuff because how is his name great? How is Abraham's name great? God made it great, just like he promised. God promised previous. He said, I will make your name great. God does that for some people. He makes their name great so that they serve the purpose of when everyone looks at them because God's made their name great, they're pointing to God. And so here, it's amazing because I'm thinking about these gifts that he's getting as he's digging through the bag. Some of them could have come from Egypt. Some of them could have been gifts from the king from a while back. All of them are there only because of what has been provided to Abraham by God. So it's interesting, these gifts that she's receiving are representative of the provision that God has already given and the provision that he will give in the future. And it says, he also gave costly ornaments to her brother and mother. This is important, and we're going to come back to it. But mark it, he gave costly ornaments to brother and mother. Brother and father made a sober judgment. Brother and mother just got costly ornaments. Verse 54, then he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. The worship continues because the time is appropriate. There's worship and there's celebration. Uh, Do y'all remember verse 33, what Eleazar says when they say, come eat, there's a feast before you. What does Eleazar say? Yeah, I got something to say. I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. Long journey, 10 camels, very tired, big decisions, huge burden, big feast and... Oh, you can smell it. But he's so diligent. He says, I will not eat because I have something to say. I'm not here for a feast. I'm here to say something. But now is a time for celebration and worship. So they eat and they drink and they hang out and they celebrate. And he gives gifts and it's a time of celebration. And I was thinking about how this is a reminder to us. um, First, that God will make it clear when the right time is to celebrate. Uh, This is indicative of what we saw earlier in Genesis, how we're given seasons and moments of rest, but we're not called to a life of rest. And if we don't understand that we have seasons and moments of rest, like when they were, um, when they were resting uh, right before uh, God stirred up the pot again, there's a season and there's a moment of rest, but we can never appreciate that season and moment of rest and make the most of it if we think that we're supposed to have a life of rest. And we described that before where it's like the guy who goes on vacation for seven or eight days and he can't enjoy the vacation because he knows that in like seven or eight days he's going to have to go home, go to work, and he can't enjoy that season because he thinks he deserves a life of rest. But we need to be sober-minded in our judgment and knowing we have seasons of rest. And this is a moment, a season, where they get to celebrate. And it's a time of worship and it's a time of rest because of God's provision. He's prospered his journey. Um, so not always, it's it's... We're not, it's not always rest, but it's not never rest. There's times where God makes it clear, and he provides that for us. Um, then when they woke up, it was not customary just to saddle up and leave. Like if he would have just gotten up early, saddled up the camels, gotten Rebecca and headed out with us, that, that's not customary, and it's, and it's, uh, it, it's not 
of right manner. To be sent away, uh, to be sent away, where, what does he say? Send me away to my master is a sign of blessing from the household. And notice how Eliezer doesn't just say, well, time to go. That's not what he says. Well, we're out. Later. Thanks for the feast. He says, send me away to my master. Again, he is faithful and diligent as a servant eager to stick to his orders. Now, this is important because something's going to come and kind of swoop in to try and make him change the plan. He says, send me to my master. Not, I'm tired, I'm Eleazar, I've done a great job, and it's time to go home. He's saying, send me to my master. That's a very specific comment. Um, In verse 55, it says, Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. Well, where in the world did this come from? Like, that's just out of left field. Stay with us. Not, no, it's not time. Uh, ten days. Uh, yeah, yeah, ten. Ten days is good. It's just kind of this out of left field request that is not lining up with the rest of, uh, of the plan. Brother and father gave a sober-minded response in verse 50. What did they say? We just said it. I got nothing. Take her and go. Verse 50. Brother and mother, however have received costly gifts. And their response is not so sober-minded. We're seeing their opportunistic nature. Like, they've only been here a day, I got some good stuff. What about 10 days? That's 10 days of good stuff. Costly ornaments, gifts. He can't just, you know, wuss out on the first day and just eat our food. He's going to give us some of the abundance that God's given them. That's this opportunistic nature that's coming to the surface. Yesterday, they said, take her and go. But now they're saying, let her remain with us a while. At least 10 days. As I read this, I thought, isn't it funny how irrational our rationalization gets when we become selfish? Isn't it funny how irrational our rationalization gets when we become selfish? This is an important point. We make our obedience dependent on some random factor that's directly linked to the flesh when we're doing that. We make our obedience, what we know is right, what was very, very clear when they said, I got nothing, take her and go. But then we we become selfish and we make our decisions and and our obedience, we add this factor that's linked directly to the flesh, and it it doesn't add up at all. Um, I was thinking about some examples of this. Now, there's a place for exercising good stewardship and making wise decisions. But sometimes, if we're being unfaithful and we're making these decisions according to the flesh, we can accidentally and very foolishly venture into an area of just disobedience. I was thinking about when you have a budget, a really strict budget, and you're being a good steward, and you're making good decisions, and you're thinking, I'm going to do this budget. We're going to finally save some money this month. We're going to save money. And so, Say it's $200. And you get to the end of the month, and you're like, I did my budget. We saved the money. We put it in savings. And you're talking to your spouse. How good? Man, it's so good. We put $200 away this month. That's great. And we've got our budget, and we've got our plan, and we just stick to it because it's what we do. And then God brings someone along your path, maybe even a good friend, who says, I'm, I'm needing, uh, man, I, bills are tight this month. We're just a few hundred dollars short, a couple hundred bucks short. Be like, well, okay, in three months when we've done this a few times, then I'll have enough to be able to give them that money that they need. And all of a sudden you can be so, you've tied this fleshly selfish thing to this budget that you've made, and it's keeping you from being obedient to what is very, very clear. I have $200 extra, that's great. God brings someone along. Man, I really need $200. Well, we have $200 extra. That's great. That's wonderful. 
I'm very sorry for your situation, you know. <laughs> and it's, it's this picture that's ridiculous because we are tying this weird, irrational factor that we've said is rational, this fleshly thing, to our obedience. Another example is uh, a friend of mine uh, who no one here knows. Um, they, they, they have a spreadsheet with all their plans. And it's not just a spreadsheet for finance, finances. It is a spreadsheet that... Um, it's kind of a plan, and they, they've got some, some house things they want to do, and they've got things with babies and things with kids, and, and maybe adoption. That's a theme. You've heard it here, um, and you've heard it elsewhere because you don't know these people. And, and there's this, you know, these things, and there's all these little factors, and, and it's we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. And that's a good plan, and, and it, it's really good stewardship. But, but this week, God just kind of dropped something in their lap, which is this opportunity. And it's, it's clear. I mean, it's like, oh, well, if we're going to be obedient, we need to, we need to stick to that. And, and my friend has this classic statement that I want to put on the wall in my office, and he just said, I think God's making fun of my spreadsheet. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's making fun of it. I think he's laughing at it. And it was this reminder that we can have this plan, but if we start trying, if he would have disregarded what God was doing, what he would have been doing is trying to rationalize in an irrational manner and it leads to disobedience. But he responded appropriately, so there's obedience there. Here, Eleazar's response in verse 56 is sober. He sticks to what he's supposed to be doing. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. He gives the reason that he needs to go right now. Uh, this is really important. His, re- his response is sober, focused. He is diligent in what he's doing. If the Lord has prospered his journey, what does it mean that the Lord, I'm sorry, if the Lord has prospered Eleazar's journey, who has the Lord shown steadfast love and faithfulness to? Abraham. So the Lord has prospered Eleazar's journey. That's what he's, that's what he's communicating. And that means that he's shown steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham. So how would this make Eleazar eager to get home? Why is he eager to get home? Abraham doesn't know. Abraham has been shown steadfast love and faithfulness by God again. There's a wife for Isaac, and that's important because they've got to make some babies because of the offspring thing. And so we got this picture that I need to get home to my master. Like, I don't want to stay here for 10 days. My master doesn't know how he has been blessed by God with steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, turn to 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 through 4. And keep your finger in Genesis when you do it. Bud Jones brought this to my attention a couple weeks ago as we kind of started talking through this. And it is a great connection. 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 4. Verse 3 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Great connection, bud. Let me read verse 4 again. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. If Eleazar gives in to this 10-day request, 
He has become entangled in civilian pursuits. These civilians are saying, let's do 10 days. And Eliezer's like, no, that's not the plan. I, 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 I've been enlisted by someone. So if Eliezer gives into this and says, all right, 10 days. That's what they want. That's what we're going to do. God's already made it clear that he's prospered his journey. And so if he gives in, he's become entangled in civilian pursuits. And he's 10 days later in pleasing the one who enlisted him. Remember, Abraham doesn't know what has happened yet. There's no email or phone where he could just call him and say, hey, good news. This is why he's eager to get back and tell his master what God has done. And look at verses 57 to 58 back in Genesis. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So what we see is that mother and brother, remember, father and brother made a good decision, sober-minded. Then they got entangled and, and selfish and fleshly. And here, mother and brother are only halfway convinced of Eleazar's appeal. Eleazar has made this appeal, send me to my master. I do not need to be delayed 10 days. And they're halfway convinced, so they ask Rebecca what she wants to do. And it's cool what happens here. Because it's important to note Rebecca's response. She's not forced into leaving. This is important. She's not forced into leaving. No one said, this is a rich family and you're going to get on that camel and you're going to go. That's not what happened. <laughs> she, in fact... She doesn't even show signs of hesitancy. She's ready and she's willing. She says, I will go. She just goes because she's convinced that what God is doing is very real. It's important to note that. We're going to come back to it. Think about how I want you all to kind of climb into this picture. Sometimes we can read these as just these narrative stories and it's like, oh, that was cool. I want you to try and climb into the picture. And I want you all to consider what Rebecca's heart, must, how it must have leapt at that decisive moment when they said, right, do you want to go? And she's sitting there looking at her mother, and her father was somewhere, there's some confusion about that, and her brother, and Eleazar, and the camels, and the servants, and the gifts, and she's looking and she says, I'll go. Think about what she was leaving. Think about what she was going to. What is she saying when she says, I will go? Climb into thinking how her heart must have felt when it was like, this is a big deal. It's essentially a lot like, will you marry me? I will. I mean, yeah, that's a big answer. Here she's saying, I will go on a journey. I will go and start a whole new season of life. I will go and meet my husband, the man who God has chosen for me and me for him. I will go and be married. That's what she's saying when she's saying, I will go. It's a big moment. Now in verse 59 through 61, it says, so they sent away Rebecca, their sister. They, they didn't put up any more of a fight. God's made himself quite clear. So they sent away Rebecca, her, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca. And listen to what they say to her. And they blessed her and said, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. What a coincidence. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. They send her away, and they don't just send her. They send her equipped. They send her with who she needs. The family asks, they say, you want to go? She says, I will go. And then they send her away equipped for what she needs. And in going, they add this prophetic blessing. It's very prophetic. 
our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. These are the very promises we've already heard from God. They're the things that we're going to see develop and pan out as we continue studying Genesis and the other scriptures. So it's amazing, this connection where they're like, uh, let this be a blessing, and God's like, yeah, that's my plan. It's been my plan. Verses 62 through 65. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahiroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, uh, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. She took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that God had done. The servant told Isaac all the details that he had paid attention to. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is where you cue the romantic music. It's like the slow-mo, they're in the field, the sun's setting, it's like they're slow-mo running to each other. My love, you know. Where we should pay special attention because this weekend is Valentine's Day. And if we want a sense of what romance is, this is a really great example. However, Valentine's Day is a silly thing compared to what goes on here. Isaac has returned from his journey and he's out in the field and he's alone with God. He's meditating. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week, about meditating and what that is. And it says it's evening and the sun is beginning to set. And in the distance, probably in a silhouette form is what I'm thinking because the sun's setting and he's looking in the distance. He's seeing something. It's probably a silhouette. And he can see a grouping of camels. And those camels mean one thing important thing his lady is with him it's funny to me that they said and he saw camels I, 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 it's funny that that's how they said it they didn't see his hot lady and camels you know so those camels mean one thing his bride has arrived his interest is peaked and so is hers he says oh ah, ah oh i know who's in that group and what does she say who is that who's that waiting for us and here, check this out. She says, who is that? And Eleazar's answer indicates the transition and transference of power that is taking place. He says, he doesn't say it's my master's son. He says, it is my master. What's happening here is we're going to see, we made that transition on the mountain where God provided the ram. And we're, we're seeing that at that point, God became not only the God of Abraham, but the God of Abraham and Isaac. And here we're seeing that Eliezer, the head servant of the household who's been there longer than Isaac has been, is now saying, that's my master. And it's important for you to know that because that is the man you're going to be married to. Next week, we're going to finish this chapter. We're going to look at some weird things next week. We're going to look at arranged marriage, which I got to put off for another week. Uh, we're going to look at real love. We're going to look at how love has a will. Uh, next week, I, I'm kind of, I, I love God's timing on this because next week after we've been given the opportunity to again observe the silly and ridiculous traditions that our culture has put in place because of Valentine's Day, we're going to take a look at real love. That's what we're going to do next week. And it's great that we get to do it after this weekend of ridiculous commercials and think, I, I'm not against romance. I love it. But like commercials like, the only way to tell your lover that you love him is with a $10,000 diamond. <laughs> no, there's other ways, thankfully. <laughs> We're going to look at real love. We're going to look at a love 
that goes beyond that pitter-patter of a heart that has a will to endure. A love that has a will to endure. A love described in Ephesians 5 that is representative of Christ's love for the church. We're going to talk about that next week. The, the thing about Christ's love for the church is that the church could do nothing to earn that love that they've received from Christ, their bridegroom. So we're going to talk about what it means for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. She, you can't expect every day she's going to do something to merit a pitter-patter of your heart. <gasps> That's great. There's got to be a will behind that. Uh, I'll probably tell this story again next week, but there's this guy who, uh, he's an, an Indian guy's name is Ravi Zacharias. I'll, I'll be sharing some things. He's written a book called I, Isaac, Take Thee, Rebecca. Uh, I didn't get a chance to read it last week. I'm hoping I can this week to, to do some things. I've listened to a couple sermons that he's had on it. And he's just talking about, he grew up in Bombay. Uh, family had, uh, a lot of people that they were around had a Hindu background. His brother actually was part of an arranged marriage. He asked his brother, like they'd send out the invitations for the wedding before he met the girl. And he said, brother, uh, what are you going to do if you see her? And you're like, the wedding's off. Or she sees you and says, I hope that's his brother, you know, or whatever. Like, what are you going to do? And his brother said something along the lines of it. it, Too many people try to marry, marry the one they love, but it's much more appropriate to love the one you marry. And this picture of the will behind love that exceeds this pitter patter of the heart comes into play. And he, and he recalled when he was a young man, and again, I'll tell the story again next week for whoever wasn't here, but he, he recalls when he was a young man, he was in a college class, and the, the professor was talking about, you have to have a will to love in marriage. You have to have a will to continue to love day after day because it's the same. We're called to love our bride as Christ loved the church, and the church can't earn that. The church doesn't get up every day and earn that kind of love and merit a pitter-patter of Jesus' heart. He's willed to love the church. And so uh, this professor said, uh, you know, there's a, there's, there must be a, a very strong will behind saying I'm going to love someone. And so he raises his hand and he says, Professor, I don't much like your view of that. I would hate to think that I had someone going and saying, it's really hard to love me. And the professor said, are you married? And he said, no. He said, sit down and shut up. Because you have no clue about what it is to endure. And five years in, and ten years in, and fifteen years in, there's got to be something more real than just this little pitter-patter of the heart. Um, so I encourage you this week, as we'll talk about that more again next week, there's a lot more to that. Um, I encourage you to make it a point to observe the ways that our culture says one is to show love, that one is to receive love, and how people go about keeping the coals of love burning. I want you all to pay attention to all the commercials and all the things you hear on the radio and all the things you look at this Valentine's Day weekend. And next week, we'll see how they compare to our scriptural mandate uh, to love uh, in a more specific way. All right, let's pray. God, you're very good to us again, and uh, I thank you for this example that Eleazar gives us again this week, this example that you give us in servant Eleazar of quiet diligence and not getting entangled in civilian pursuits and communicating what you've done clearly so that people can make rational, good decisions, of persevering when you needed to persevere, of speaking when he needed to speak, of resting and celebrating and worshiping when he was supposed to rest and celebrate and worship. I'm thankful for this picture that we get to engage next week after Valentine's Day uh, of a love that you brought together, a love that you designed, and uh, a love that would have a global impact uh, for the rest of this time, the rest of the time that this this world exists. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you for the example that you've given us and, uh, and these uh, people that, are, that were real 
and uh, that actually lived and breathed and walked on this earth. And I'm thankful for the truth that you give us in the word. I'm thankful for the spirit that you give us to have any ability to understand uh, what, is, what is being said in the scriptures. And I'm thankful for the unity that we have in Christ. God, I do pray that married people have a lovely weekend. I, I, I pray that it's a wonderful time, but I pray that we're sober-minded in what we're doing and that we're enjoying each other's company and that, we're, that men are doing what Ephesians 5 says and loving their wives as Christ loved the church and that women are doing what Ephesians 5 says and submitting, probably, hopefully, not begrudgingly, submitting to a love that's very real and very tender and very thought out and very wholehearted. God, that would not exist if you had not designed it. And so we have far more to be thankful for in, in the ones that you have brought together than uh, a, a culture that takes God out of the equation and equates it all to a feeling and something that is easy. If, if, it, if it's right, it's easy. Um, God, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the example of the church as the bride and of Christ as the bridegroom. And we thank you for the promises you give us in the future that have uh, everything to do with, with that and what's going on here. Thank you for the testimonies we heard tonight. Thank you for the people here who have been willing to share and the people here who have been willing to listen to what God is doing, to how you are very real and you are working in the lives of your children and you're providing and you're guiding and you're warning. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.